The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. It's a centenary year of 1922, which as every GCSE student knows is the year that modernism broke. I'm joined by the writer and critic Merve Emre and by Richard Davenport-Hines, who wrote, among his many books, A Night at the Majestic, an account of a famous dinner party that took place in Paris in 1922. Can I start by asking you both, is this sort of GCSE version of it that 1922 was like, that was modernism? How true is that? And why do we think that's the year? I mean, of course, we know there's Ulysses, we know there's the wasteland at the end of the year, but how much support is there for that case? <laughs> that's, that's brutal. Uh, 1922 is the year when the real hangover from the First World War, uh, the grief and the anger and the real neurosis begins finally to wane. It's the first really post-war year so far as the arts are concerned. And I think that's the real reason why it's important. Proust dies in it and finishes his writing, the final volume of uh, Recherche de Tempeur and Joyce also publishes Ulysses but that but that's that's it's it's a much wider cultural change happens in that year I I think you can answer that question in two ways Sam one thing you could do is to say that it's 1922 simply because Ezra Pound went to a great deal of trouble to proclaim that it was 1922 when modernism broke the world. And to support Pound's claim, you could marshal a great deal of both historical evidence, as Richard has, but also literary evidence and say it's not just the publication of Ulysses and the publication of The Wasteland, but it is the rejection of an earlier American literary realism as emblematized by someone like Willa Cather, who won the Pulitzer in 1922 and was savaged by Edmund Wilson for being old school compared to what these young, new intellectual modernists were up to. So, you know, that that's one way to answer the question is to say that Pound made a strong claim and there's evidence that we could marshal for it. I think to build on what Richard was saying, you could also see it in a much larger historical scope and say that 1922 represents the culmination of a project that began really in 1880 with the initial stirrings of modernism in poetry, in Mallarmé's poetry, but also with the beginning of the decline of a particular version of liberal capitalism that comes to crisis in those early post-war in in those early post-war years as Richard was saying. So whether you look at it kind of locally as a rupture or as a in in a larger frame as a kind of culmination of various historical processes it's not that the GCSE story is wrong really it's just that it needs to be put in a slightly broader context. 
Yeah, that sense of rupture. You know, we think of modernism as being this sudden decisive break. You know, the Georgian poets and so forth are in the bin. We've suddenly got this fractured, jagged new thing. But you're saying it goes back to Malame. I mean, how much of a rupture was it? How unprecedented was modernism? The rupture is, is enormously exaggerated by self-interested people who are involved in what's happening. Of course, the power and the strength of the modernists comes from the fact that they are drawing on the best and most interesting and rich and exciting of 19th century and early cultural activities, literary activities. Pound and Eliot and Proust and in a strange way, Joyce, are all harking back to 19th century culture, uh, literary culture. Stravinsky is part of a a fantastic Russian tradition that he revolutionises or treats very radically, but he's still in that tradition. And there's nothing absolutely original, nothing discontinuous that happens in, in 22. I, I would I would agree with that. And I would say that one of the things that gets hugely overlooked when we talk about modernism as a rupture is precisely what Richard just said, which is the the continuities between 19th century realism in the novel and the modernist project. And one of my favorite essays on Ulysses was written by the now late literary scholar Leo Bersani, who died two days ago, I believe. Uh, And in this wonderful essay called Against Ulysses, he argues that Ulysses is essentially a 19th century realist novel of character that happens to have some technical machinery obscuring that project. And its project is to let us get to know these central characters, Leopold Bloom, Stephen Dedalus, and Molly Bloom, and even Gertie McDowell, in an intimate and empathetic kind of way. And whether you agree with that precisely or not, I think that one of the things it does bring up is that the 19th century realist project remains within the novels that are touted as being the most formally experimental the most radical or revisionary projects of of modernist aesthetics. Hugely agree with Mervyn. That is one of the reasons it's always so painful to me that Willa Cather is treated as a has-been in 1922 because, in fact, she's one of the very, very great 20th century American novelists one could possibly dream of. And her, 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 her realism, her acuity, her, her whist-taking is something that really feeds into the mood of, of modernism. I, I find any, any attempt to say somebody like that is, uh, has been is uh, horrendous. But it's interesting to see how, for example, Edith Wharton suddenly feels she's terribly out of date and tries to write very different novels. Um, One of them, The Children, hugely underweighted, the most amazing, cold, horrifying depiction of an adult male interested in pubescent girls. It's a tremendous novel. And she tries to break out too. So you can't separate what's happening. No, and one of the best accounts, I think, one of the best refusals to separate what's happening while also expanding the scene of 1922 
is Michael North's really wonderful book, Reading 1922, A Return to the Scene of the Modern. And that book begins with a really great reading of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby and of that moment in The Great Gatsby where Main Street meets the wasteland as being an attempt to try to reconcile Willa Cather's Main Street realism with Eliot's experimentalism and to say, no, these two are actually at a kind of crossroads. One does not supersede the other. They are entirely twined into the fabric of each other's imagination. Yeah, there's also that sense, isn't there, that, that you know, the totemic modernist works are really actively, you know, bringing in as much debris from the past as they can. I mean, Wasteland obviously is, you know, stuffed with all this, these quotations that go right back, you know, Ulysses' model is as ancient as it can get. I mean, was the idea to reconfigure the past rather than to break with it? There is uh, an enormous desire to be original and creative and to to start people thinking afresh after the war in completely different ways. But there's no rejection by anyone who's any good of the of of, of pre-war models and particularly of what the best of realism could offer to the 20th century modernists. We're talking entirely about literature, of course, but one could, and it would be perhaps too complicated to talk expansively about what's happening in the visual arts or in music, but... In fact, the same thing, the same trends of innovative advance that is based on what's happened in the past are continuing in music and in painting. I think that question of modernism's relationship to the past is such an interesting one, Sam, because it, I mean, part part of what that question gets at is whether imitation or appropriation or what Eliot does, shoring these fragments against his ruin and against the ruin of the world, opens up a portal by which we can access what felt like a past, an epic past that was entirely closed off, or whether it signals a destruction of the very idea of time and progress when you have all of these literary styles, all of these quotations coexisting with one another and a refusal in a novel like Ulysses to choose among them, to say this one marks a path forward. So the question of modernism's relationship to time seems in part to be also a question about the balance or the the dialectic between creation and destruction in modernism. And I think that's always just by, by virtue of the nature of the question left unresolved. Now, Richard, you just touched on this question of, I mean, we talk about modernism, as, you know, with a capital M, as something that seems to reach across, you know, the literary and the plastic arts and music and as if it's a monolith. How much do you think it is true to talk about it as a single movement? I mean, is, are there really obvious commonalities between modernism and the different arts? Um, Apart from the actual medium, difference of medium, which is obviously immensely important, yes, indeed, they are all in the same moment of time. They're all, for example, in this moment in the early 1920s when suddenly technology has become central to government, central to public life, providing imagery, 
sounds and sights to the arts, the the impact of the importance of technology in, in the Great War comes over into all of the arts afterwards, and one can one can see machine sounds and machine sights and machine smells everywhere in the in the arts. So I think that's very important. I think one of the modernisms that we haven't spoken about is what is happening in the United States in 1922, particularly around the Harlem Renaissance, where there are a different set of technologies involved in the creation and the circulation of distinctly racialized ideas about modernism. And I'm thinking in particular about the theater and the importance of the theater and the importance of spectacle to making the Harlem Renaissance a different kind of center of modernism. Because 1922, of course, was not just the year of Ulysses and of the Wasteland, but it's also the year of Claude McKay's Harlem Shadows. One year later, it's the publication of Gene Toomer's Cain, although the question of whether or not parts of that would be dramatized was an open question for Toomer and Waldo Frank in 1922. And so I think if you have on the one hand a version of modernism and of a particularly kind of continental or British modernism that's stressing the development of technologies of the novel and the development of a particular kind of fractured interiority and its relationship to time, then you can't consider that without also considering the spectacle-based, theatricalized version of modernism that you get centered around African-American literature in the U.S. at the same time. And of course, there are technologies of mobility and of communication that allow those two things to interpenetrate one another. But they are, I think, distinctive kinds of, or distinctive projects of modernism. I mean, would would those African-American writers of the Harlem Renaissance have been consciously feeling a kinship with what was going on in Europe? Yeah, so I just read a really wonderful manuscript of a book. I don't know if this counts as libeling someone. No, I'm, I'm going to say very Rubble nice away. things, but the book, <laughs> but the book isn't out yet. Uh, I just, I just read the manuscript of a, a a wonderful novel that makes the connection between Virginia Woolf's Jacob's Room and the project of tunneling into characters' minds and memories that Wolf begins in Jacob's Room and then develops in Mrs. Dalloway several years later. And the writing of Nella Larson, who had a more vexed relationship to the Harlem Renaissance, but a relationship nonetheless. So that's the example that's just at the forefront of my mind right now. And that Elizabeth Abel, in a forthcoming book on Wolf's afterlives, develops very beautifully. But yes, I think there were certainly nodes of connection between between the writers of the Harlem Renaissance and the British modernists. The the, the 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 British modernists were in this respect at a hideous disadvantage because of the rules of the Lord Chamberlain's Office in theatrical censorship, which to our ears, to our judgment, now seems appallingly racist, and circumscribes in a very narrow way any depiction of black people on stage intermixing with white people. I think we all know how uh, how severe the Lord Chamberlain's office was in the depiction of sexuality, but it's triply so if there's any hint of interracial sexuality or any hint of 
colonial, what were then called subject peoples being given any sort of uh, articulation or power. And that's a, that's a really backward force. To develop this idea, I mean, I'm interested in the connections. How much of a sense, you know, we, we're used to seeing sort of Ezra Pound as the kind of Malcolm McLaren style huckster of this movement, but how much of a sense of real groupness or identity in a common project was there among the people we now think of as the sort of totemic modernists? I mean, we know, for instance, that Virginia Woolf didn't think much of Ulysses when it came out. Well, these are all introverted people living passionately in their own minds and willing probably to kill in order to be able to finish their books. So one can't expect them to be... One can't expect them to be... Like a cooperative, like a, a cooperative farmers market where everyone helps one another out all the time. So um, no, and and when when and when they when Le Corbusier meets Joyce, for example, they have um, what's meant to be a very exciting conversation for both of them. They are absolutely stymie one another and end up talking about Joyce's parakeets, which is the only common ground they're willing to. <laughs> dare to meet on so the, these are people who aren't cooperative thank heavens not i was just thinking how one of the best portraits of their uncooperativeness can be found in the journals of mary butts who was a, a minor modernist writer but who seemed to be at the center of every good party and had the most vicious things to say about Wyndham Lewis and Eliot and Wolf in her journals. But she was married to the poet and the publisher, John Rodker, for some time. And it just makes me think that so much of these networks between the major modernists were primarily textual networks. They were networks of publishing. They were networks of reviewing. And while you have these wonderful set pieces in Virginia Woolf's diaries of T.S. Eliot coming to visit her, for tea and a, and a talk, the most memorable moments in those are when he tries to get her to submit a short story to a magazine that he is editing. And so I do think that, that yes, the, the vision of them as being a kind of cooperative farmer's market of modernists is, is not the appropriate, you're, you're right, there, there's something very funny about trying to fit them into that particular frame. But a more distanced network that is always mediated by the work of publication, by the work of editing, by the work of circulating one another's books in bookshops and in in, in libraries. That that seems to me to be a more appropriate model for the kind of connection that we see among many of these among many of these writers. And money matters in all this, I think. Yeah. They borrow money from one another or try to borrow money from one another. There is some people such as Wyndham Lewis and James Joyce are notoriously ungrateful. But uh, they, Elliot is making trying to make money out of Criterion. The magazines, uh, the little magazines of the time, and they are, many of them, absolutely wonderful, certainly have aesthetic purposes, but they're also definitely intended to make a profit. And that's the mutual interest that matters, I think. I mean, if the, the, most of their interactions are textual, there is, you know, Richard, you read a whole book about it, this dinner party, this famous dinner party at the Majestic. Was this like the most awkward gathering ever? How did it come about? 
Oh, well, you you haven't been to Christmas lunch with my family, so no, it wasn't the most... <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't remotely. But it was a culturally very ambitious Englishman called Sidney Schiff and his wife, who justifiably regarded themselves as patrons of the arts, but were very clean to be on first-name terms and to, to try a people like Proust. They have a dinner party in Paris in which they try to bring together the great modernists and also the great modernist patrons, duchesses who wrote novels and princesses who wrote poetry and so forth. And of course, Stravinsky's there as well, Picasso's there, Diaghilev is there, but the attention tends to focus on the two writers, Joyce and Proust, who pretend not to have uh, read one another's works, although they, although Joyce certainly had read Proust's, and they really only find the common ground in hypochondria and complaining about drafts and dyspepsia <laughs> and 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 grumbling stomachs. <laughs> Something about writers' parties never changed. Joyce would have read Proust presumably in French, would he? Because it, the first volume of Proust in English was twenty two, wasn't it? Is that right? Yes, the, the, yes. Joyce, who was a wonderful linguist, of course, and an ex-language teacher, had read Proust in French, pretended that he hadn't, but really because he never felt at all confident in being litzy-critzy with either with any other writer. He didn't feel that he had the mental equipment or training, really, to talk about other writers in a way that didn't make him seem dull. Joyce, Joyce didn't think he had the mental equipment <laughs> to criticise other writers. So there, I mean, he, he was a, he was curiously modest about he was curiously modest about the business of literary criticism. Is what I uh, is what I'm saying. He was gloriously self confident about his own writing, but to comment and criticise and draw lessons from other people's writings was something he didn't want to do. And I think it's from a sense of uh, bashfulness. That wonderful exchange between him and, is it Ibsen, when he writes his first sort of literary critical essay on Ibsen and Ibsen writes to him? And I then didn't he, know that, yes. No, what, what is that? It's, I think, Joyce's earliest foray into writing literary criticism. I just want to read a section of the letter that he writes to Ibsen because it is, it is startlingly modest and very meek in its way. <clears throat> oh yes, he says, Dear Sir, so, so Joyce has written an essay called Ibsen's New Drama. This is in 1900. And somehow Ibsen gets a copy of it and writes to Joyce and Joyce writes back, Dear Sir, I wish to thank you for your kindness in writing to me. I'm a young Irishman, 18 years old, and the words of Ibsen I shall keep in my heart all my life, faithfully yours. I really, I really like that. <laughs> yes. I really love sweet that. Sweet side Would it have dismayed Joyce? Do you think? I mean, Merve, you've you've worked on Joyce extensively, particularly recently. That if he was someone who was shy of literary criticism, his book has probably spawned a bigger literary critical industry than almost any other. Mm. Would you have found that disconcerting? Do you think? No, I mean he certainly intended it, didn't he? It's it's almost yes. it's 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 one one feels almost obligated to quote his line about keeping the professors talking for a hundred 
years, even though he's in that case speaking, I think about Finnegan's Wake and not about Ulysses, but the the product has been more or less the same. No, I, I think that the, the trouble with Ulysses, or rather what interests me about the reception of Ulysses goes back to what we were speaking about a little bit earlier on in our conversation, which is the tendency readers have and critics have to get so involved with the technical apparatus of the novel that you forget or you fail to see or you are blinded to the humanist core of it. And rereading Ulysses this time around, it was very interesting to me to see that humanist core more clearly than I did the technical machinery. And that's maybe just because you need a couple of readings with the annotations in hand, simply to understand what's going on before you can let that go and indulge in what Bersani would identify as the 19th century pleasures of the novel's characters and their investment in questions of desire and of of love and how that ends up intertwined with all kinds of larger political and ethical questions in the novel. Yeah, that that question, I mean, I suppose it's it's was originally almost forcefully stated by John Carey, this idea that but broadly modernists were snobs, that the difficulty, the surface difficulty of the work was intended to be exclusionary and address it to a necessarily very small, very intellectually refined audience. And yet, you know, something like Ulysses, you know, it's a really sort of gritty, democratic, street-level sort of book. I mean, how do you read that apparent tension between the sort of democratic and the elite in modernism? I would repeat what we said earlier about how that sense of 1922 as a rupture has been greatly exaggerated to simply say that the divide between modernism as an autonomous and elite art and mass culture has also been greatly exaggerated. And I think that Joyce in particular is such an interesting example of this. And actually Eliot too, I'm I'm thinking about the moment in the second part of The Wasteland in A Game of Chess where you have the pub talk that comes after that wonderfully aestheticized description of Philomena and the the rape of Philomen and the punishment of the nightingale. You know, I, I think that modernists were always interested in mass culture. They were interested in ranging the forms and the genres of mass culture alongside these allegedly high art forms like the novel. And I think it's impossible to consider the year 1922 without considering both the uh, the introduction of the BBC as a technology of, of cultural dissemination to the masses, but also in the United States considering the rise of public relations and a culture of the image and of the popular image that would attend other figures of 1922, like Charlie Chaplin, for instance. So I think both that sense of the year as a rupture, but also the sense that within modernism, or that modernism is high art rupturing itself from mass culture, both of those things have been wildly exaggerated in making claims about the autonomy or the elitism or the snobbishness of art. Yes, there's a huge appetite for literary culture, and that is 
exemplified in 1922 by DeWitt Wallace founding the Reader's Digest, which is is an important event in its way as as the BBC. Uh, He is a man who goes on to be a very major art collector and art connoisseur. He's presented as something of a hick, something of an exploiter, but he and his wife, in fact, are major collectors of their of the period and on on a, on a, on a sumptuous scale i would say i i, I agree utterly about the about the, the the demotic appeal in the wasteland and so forth but i would say that the readership of proust in both in french and even more so in english translation in 1922 and thereafter does have a very self-consciously exclusive element. A whole generation of university people who are at university in the 1920s absolutely define themselves by being Proustian. They ate Proust characters. They have uh, seminars and discussion groups on, on Proust. Proust replaces Oscar Wilde as a definer of a certain type of culture, and a certain type of rebel sexuality, and that's tremendous. He's can't it can't be said how important he is in the nineteen twenties in that respect, at least in England and parts of the United States. And it's significant too that nineteen twenty two is the year when, in Oxford in particular, Oxford, the University of Oxford in particular, the East Feet movement really takes off. It, it, this, it was impossible for this to happen much before 1922 because of all the hearties left over who came to the university after the war. But by 1922, East, the East Eats are very prominent and they are interesting because, of course, many of them are gay. Many of them, however, many of the people who join the movement are experimental and bisexual in a way that speaks to a lot of our concerns in the twenty in the twenty first century, and they are a really radical influence in the whole of cultural and political life thereafter. One had Chips Channon's diaries, the MP diaries being edited by Simon Heffer, so full of young men sleeping together, not necessarily because they want sex from one another, but just because they want new forms of fraternity and physical intimacy that have been forbidden. The the aesthetic movement in Oxford dies quite suddenly around 1929 with the slump, because because fathers after 1929 don't have the money to pay for the East Eat lifestyle with the cures and perfumes and objets d'art. In the trust fund kids. With the trust fund, exactly so. Well, the trust funds go broke. Um, so then they all go off and join the uh, AUDS, the Oxford University Drama Society, instead, where they can where they can dress up and flaunt themselves on the cheap. But it's a very, very important sea change in... Uh, English cultural life. Um, I was going to ask if the aesthetes were at Cambridge before then, if you had the the kind of Bloomsbury Cambridge crowd, which was which was enacting that you know ten twenty years earlier. But no, Richard, what you said, joking aside, what you said just made me think about how important the school is to consecrating or to canonizing a particular version of modernism and to insisting on 
modernism's affiliation with certain kind of aesthetic ideology and a certain kind of exclusivity. And I was thinking, rereading Michael North's book this morning, how 1922 is also the year that I.A. Richards takes up his post at Cambridge and a particular version of practical criticism and the operations of practical criticism that will become, whether rightly or wrongly, allied with the modernist project could also be traced back to that to that year. So the question of how the school functions in producing these Proustians or later in producing Joycians or Wolfians or any of the kind of single author societies that tend to that tend to cohere around major modernist figures is a very interesting one to me and interesting personally in part because that presence seems to continue in British academia in a way that it doesn't in American academia. We don't really have with the same kind of intensity and, and personal emotional connection, the the Wolfians or the Bacchettians or what have you. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned I.A. Richards because his, 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 his in Cambridge, he has tremendous influence, profound subversive influence in Oxford on the generation of, uh, that produced W.H. Auden and Spender and McNeese. And he is a critic and a thinker who really gives at this time to the young and changes a lot. Yeah, that that touches on something that I was also interested in asking about, which is, you know, the the uh, the view from here versus the view then. You know, we we look back and see, for instance, obviously Alain Recherche and Ulysses and you know the Wasteland and the early works of Eliot as being these great sort of blue crested mountains back in 22. But how how quickly did that sort of sense of it develop? I mean, at the time when they were coming out, you know, obviously Ulysses is published in Paris. As, uh, you know, it was expensive. It wasn't hugely widely circulated. How, how long did it take? And was it the Academy that did it for the these works to become sort of cemented into the canon? I don't know if, if Merve would agree with me, but I think the universities were very important in this. Just as people talk about remembering where they were when JFK was shot, I've come across people who remember where they were when they first heard the wasteland was sighted. Or, or indeed, um, as, as, uh, when I was writing my biography of Auden, I, I found someone who said that he was a old men of his generation when they were dying would in their last thoughts start mumbling early Auden, which is what had formed them so utterly. It's a, it, there's a wonderful sense of people who actually have very different lives being at Oxford or Cambridge in the 1920s and having an incredibly culturally exciting, challenging, threatening formative experience. Yeah, I think that there is a lag, Sam, as as you put it, between when these works were actually produced and when they became part of a larger kind of cultural consciousness, even among modernists. So I think about the fact that Ulysses was banned in many countries for almost, what, a decade 15 years, someone correct me, I can't remember exactly the amount of time, but that there was a significant gap 
between when it would have been published and when people would have actually been reading it. And that many of the people who were influenced by it early on, so I'm thinking not only of Wolf or of Pound, but of someone like Mary Butts, who only encountered it through her affiliation with Rodker's Publishing Press, which published, I think, maybe the second page proofs or something like that of the novel. So it took time, I think, for its effects to ripple outward. There's a story that I like very much about Eliot and the internationalization of Eliot, and it comes from a wonderful memoir by F.O. Matheson called The Heart of Europe, in which he recounts being on a Fulbright year, maybe the inaugural Fulbright year in 1945, attending first the Salzburg seminar, and then sort of touring these Eastern European universities to try to put together an American canon, and trying to teach T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland in translation, and trying to figure out how the work of translation and the work of figuring out, for instance, which dialects in which countries would map onto the British pub talk in that second section as being this act of simultaneously consecrating Eliot's The Wasteland in, for these international reading publics, and at the same time changing it by translating it. And so I think anytime you start thinking about how these works move, how they circulate, how they're disseminated, you have to think about how they're also changed in the process, whether it's by presenting them in new editions with new kinds of corrections, whether it's presenting them alongside other kinds of auxiliary materials like reader's guides, or whether it's translating them into different languages. And that's another way maybe in which 1922 as a site of rupture is inaccurate, because what's produced in 1922 inevitably mutates and evolves and becomes plugged into all sorts of different contexts, linguistic and cultural and institutional, as it circulates around the world over the next over the next several decades. That Wolf was influenced by Joyce. I mean, that her famous first verdict was saying it was like the scratching of the pimples on the boot boy at Claridge's. Did she, well, well, did she just say that for effect and then essentially revise it? Or Oh, she was very jealous. Yeah. I mean, she was very jealous. She wanted T.S. Eliot's approval so badly. And there are these agonizing passages in the diary when he comes to visit her and she listens to him talk about how great Joyce is. And even a hundred years later, the envy just rises from the page, like the most noxious kind of steam, like poison gas, right? And so I think that part of it is jealousy. I think part of it is prudishness. I think part of it is a kind of middle-class British woman's aversion to the productions of a working-class Irish autodidact. That's fairly explicit in the diaries. And so I think the combination of plain old human jealousy and plain old human prejudice explains a great deal of her reaction to the novel. But I also think she was absolutely influenced by it. And it's hard to read Mrs. Dalloway set on a single day in a city moving with with a narrator who is sort of ravenously moving in and out of the minds of its characters without thinking about Joyce. And without thinking, too, about how 
maybe the greatest lesson that she took from Joyce and adapted for her own purposes is how to combine a really precise technical scaffolding for writing a novel with the most timeless and humanistic questions about what what is beauty? What is love? What does it mean to be part of this world, to be both an individual and singular being and also part of being more generally? And so I think that she might have had the reaction that she did, but the work betrays that reaction in various kinds of ways. Yeah. Yes, it's very significant. I, I, I'm very glad that Mrs. Dalloway has been mentioned, not only because it's such a gorgeous book, but it's, of course, published in 25, but set so significantly in 1922. Three. Two. Two. Is both a, a return to a certain kind of normalcy, but yes. also, as Alex Wordling really beautifully argues, awake for the end of a particular configuration of empire. Yes, a- absolutely, and and so crucial the war, the the psychologically destroyed war veteran who ends by impaling himself in those, these hideous circumstances on the Wailings. It's an, a novel with a tremendous sense of historical historical moment. And when I, when I read a book review in The Spectator by Philip Henshaw, DJ Taylor, I feel exactly the emotions that Wolf felt when she looked at Joyce. I mean, one the sort of tears of envy and the twisted, <laughs> the twisted ideas one has. I, the, the, the envy, the envy in in Wolf's diaries is 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 so human and immediately familiar. No, I I really I I I mean I like that about her too because even yes. in a diary one it often feels compelled to present oneself to oneself in a particularly sanitized way. And it's amazing that she, even when she attempts to do that, her writing is so good that she cannot suppress her own very human, very ugly feelings, which is what makes her just a fantastic diarist, I think, and makes those diaries such an absolute thrill to read. Yes, they're, they're, they're sumptuously which endlessly so. Well, this conversation has been, at least from my end, sumptuously rich also. I'm really grateful to you both for giving me your time. Merve Emre, Rich Davenport-Hines, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Sam. listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you